When I talk to property investors, they often tell me using debt is a key advantage over other asset classes. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rask. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rask Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rask AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Chris Bates, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, mate. Owen, how you doing? Thanks for the invite. How's life? Not too bad. Not too bad. Just recording remotely today. A bit crook this morning, but that's okay. Such is life. Um, how are you going up in Sydney? Mate, healthy. I'm uh, yeah, having a good run here. I know what it feels like to be sick. Um, two young kids. Uh, you're just waiting for the next uh, missile <laughs> to hit you. <laughs> um, yeah. Today, we're going to be answering some questions uh, sent through by the audience. Uh, we've got a lot of community questions here today from LMI through to redraws, offsets, whether to buy first or sell first if you're upgrading so much to get to. Obviously, we don't know per- people's personal circumstances uh, as we try and generalize the questions, of course. But it's important to speak to a mortgage broker like, say, Chris here and the team at Blusk or your financial advisor or accountant uh, before you act on the information that we give today. So many people will know you, Chris, from Blusk. Um, you've got, obviously, the Elephant in the Room podcast that you do, but also you're a co-host on the Australian Property Podcast. And um, you've been my mortgage broker for quite a few years, which I've been stoked with. Uh, I was... I think the community would be interested to know that um, people have already settled mortgages that have come through the, the Rask and Blusk partnership. And I think there's over a hundred people or couples that have gone through that process or are in the process sorry, right now. So that's awesome. Um, we've also got the free property course uh, that uh, you and Amy did on the Rask site, which um, is over five or 6,000 enrollments now. So it's amazing. But mate, First question, um, there was a lot of questions that came in on this. So I'm just going to keep it mm. broad, which is this 
I guess lenders mortgage insurance or LMI, people would be familiar with that, but maybe you can give us a primer on what that is. Yeah. And then there are a lot of questions that came through specifically on some of the waivers that apply. So when you don't have to use LMI. So maybe we'll just start with what is LMI and go from there. All right. So LMI is something called lenders mortgage insurance, which is um, it's a bit cheeky to be honest. It's, and it's quite a frustrating thing to, to pay. Um, it's not to say you shouldn't completely avoid it at all costs, but it's one of those things that you pay it and you're unlikely to see that money again. It's kind of like a transaction cost. And it really hits uh, usually first home buyers who haven't got enough to cover a 20% deposit. And what the banks do is they force you to take out this insurance that protects them, doesn't really protect you. Um, and if you end up defaulting on that loan, then the bank can claim on that insurance to cover any of their losses, right? Um, but you know, they basically say, well, if I'm going to take a bit of risk on you, as in you're going to try to buy a property without a 20% deposit, you've got to take out this insurance. Now, the insurance gets gradually more expensive. It's not like one fee if you go over 80% or a 20%, just under a 20% deposit. It's sort of like an, you know, an exponential curve, right? And, you know, right. when you're borrowing something, you know, 80 to 88%, you know, the mortgage insurance is expensive. It might be, you know, 1% to 2% times your property value or your loan amount. Um but it's not ridiculous. Once you start getting up to like a 10% deposit or 8% or a 7% deposit, the lender's mortgage insurance really kicks and it might go to 3 or 4% of the loan amount. And um, it's really hard to justify it. And, you know, what we generally, we do very few loans over 90%. I can't even remember the last one we did. Um, besides, the, there's a government 5% deposit scheme as well, which we probably should throw in here as well. So if you're eligible for that based on your income, whether you haven't bought a property before or you know, um, and there's actually limits there. Um, you might have to, you might could avoid lenders mortgage insurance altogether by using the 5% deposit scheme. So I'd check that out. But assuming you're not eligible for, for that, um, then you might have to pay something called LMI. And I guess, you know, it's some, the way to think about it is if the time it takes you to save up to a 20% deposit is going to take some time. And if, if the market moves in that time upwards, if it moves up more than what the cost of that LMI would, would have been to get into the market today versus in 12 months or two years' time, are you better off just to take that hit, pay that 1% to 2% and then be in the market now versus in 12 months' time? And so I don't don't avoid LMI but try, try not to go over 90% loan. Like, And ideally the sweet spot we try to get all our clients to is 88%, so a 12% deposit. Um but you've also got to remember, you usually have to pay stamp duty. Now, if you're first-time buyers, maybe you're under some exemptions and the state governments are always changing the rules there. But if not, then you probably should allow, you know, 5 to 6% for stamp duty. Um, in Victoria, in particular, they know how to charge. So, um, yeah, that, the sweet number is kind of like if you add it up, 5% stamp duty, 10% deposit. That's kind of the minimum that people should be aiming for, which is around 15% times the purchase price. Um, however, you might not have to pay stamp duty. You might be able to get a 5% deposit scheme. Um, and mm. these are other things that you could could explore. Yeah. I remember when um, we first started talking a long time ago, um, I remember being very anti-LMI because I think mm. I remember reading about it in maybe – I don't want to throw him under the bus, but maybe it was in Scott Pape's book, The Barefoot Investor. I think maybe it was in there. I can't remember where I read it, but I was like, People are like you don't have to pay this insurance. It protects the bank, not you. Um, but then I, I was speaking to my brother-in-law, and he was saying, "Well, it doesn't." I think he was actually listening to one of your podcasts, and he's like, "But it, actually, if you hear what Chris is saying, it makes a lot of sense that if you're going to buy the property, you're going to be in it for a long time, and the market is slowly 
but surely going up. Um, you kind of have to put that aside and come to grip with the reality that you may have to cop a little bit of it. Um, but one of the things that was sent through, and there was quite a few questions on this, Chris, was, and I was just checking it out online because I wasn't aware of all of these, but there are certain waivers that apply for folks that don't want to pay LMI. Um, so, for example, I was looking online, doctors, accountants, lawyers, athletes, and some entertainment professionals. There's heaps of asterisks around these, by the way. Hmm. But can you maybe give us a, a sense of, are there is there ways to avoid having to cop the LMI? Um, yeah, absolutely. And just another thing to throw in there is, um, you know, you're right there in terms of if it is a, you know, getting in the market now, pay one two two percent versus buying in the future. You sort of got to, you know, realize that it's maybe a good investment, right? And you know, to get in now versus later. And that's what I think you're sort of alluding to there. The other thing to remember, if it's an investment property, it's seen as a borrowing cost, and borrowing costs are tax deductible over five years. And so, obviously, check that with your accountant. But you know. If you're paying that, you know, one to two percent, and you get that tax deduction over five years, if you're holding it as an investment, it's even more incentive to potentially pay it uh, if it's for an investment property. Now, the LMI waivers. So, what what these, why these really exist is the banks want to get certain types of borrowers on their books at a lower risk, and you know, certain professions, and in particularly the medical profession, they will do anything and everything to get them as a customer. The stuff they'll do for doctors and, you know, anything to, to do really with the medical profession, nurses and things like that have come in in recent years. Um, but, you know, particularly doctors, you know, they'll do 95% loans, 100% loans. They do short-term loans. They they do all sorts of crazy things um, for doctors, right? So if you are one, hey, you're probably going to be earning above You've studied hard for it, but you're probably going to be earning enough above mm. average income. But also, you're going to find lending's really easy, um, you know, and your ability to leverage your money is much greater. And so, if you're in that profession, you've actually got access to credit um, terms that no one else really can get. Um, there are other professions that are a bit watered down, like things like lawyers and barristers and accountants that are CAs and um but, you know, when you start getting away from that a little bit further, um, they start to put more and more restrictions on it. So there's minimum incomes and, right. um, you know, and the role and, you know, and you have to have certain job titles. Like, so sometimes you actually have to have that in your job title. You can't have just be, you know, the past you could have like surveyors, um, you know, vets are in there as well. So there's, it does get quite broad, but it's usually those sort of qualified professionals that have had quite a lot of study. There seems to be very low issues with employment in these and uh, like athletes is an interesting one you mentioned like mm. um westpac just killed their entertainment division not that long ago westpac premier um and so and like even high income really high income people sometimes we can get lmi waivers for there's um you All know right. one of the one of the big four banks are doing something quite interesting at the moment they're doing a pilot for 95% loans for people borrowing three to $5 million. Um, so there's, and there's these little policies that come out um, time to time. So if you are in one of these professions, it's always worthwhile just checking what are my options out there. Um, and, you know, some banks have, you have to be a, a member of the association, you have to be over certain minimum incomes, but then some banks might just have no minimum income depending on the job. So it's a bit of a minefield, but great brokers should know this. I mean, they can go and do a bit of hunting because all the banks have credit policies that we can get access to. So we just basically call up the bank, check credit policy, and um, then we can lodge a loan knowing that it's going to get approved. Well, that's a benefit of going to a broker like such as yourself because you've got a full team behind you 
And if you're calling up a bank for XYZ client and then, you know, your colleague next to you is also calling up a different bank, then you don't have to make two calls, right? You know the answer to the question straight away. Um, and just, but just to give a, a, a sense for people um, who are listening to this and do, because we do, it actually is interesting when we've done surveys in the past, Chris, the number one uh, industry for the RASC audience is actually in the medical healthcare related industry. Um, I think second was construction and engineering after that. But uh, just to give a sense, if you uh, in the position and you hold a title such as dentist, optometrist, veterinarian, chiropractor, pharmacist, professional athlete, um, like a pro- like a professional athlete, let's be very clear about that, accounting professionals, CFOs, actuaries, auditors, and entertainment professionals from television, film, theater, music, fashion, um, go and speak to a mortgage broker because there may be things that apply to you that others don't have access to. And I'm one of those that doesn't have access to these things. Unfortunately, I didn't get an accounting degree. Um, but go and speak to them because it could be a significant leg up for you. Um, and if not, then you may have other things apply that you just, you're just you not aware of. So that's a great question uh, from everyone. That we, we didn't put that to any one individual because there were so many people that asked about it. But go and particularly in this market, go and check it out and speak to Chris and the team. Um, okay. So and the next- thing that I had to remember there as well, sometimes people say, well, I don't need it. I've got a 20% deposit. But if you can borrow at 90% mm. and not have to pay lenders mortgage insurance, we can argue for a really good rate for you. Maybe it's not as great as the rate at 80%. It's a slight premium, but nothing major. It might be five or 10 basis points, right? Um and what that allows you to do is put that other 10% that you were going to put down for a mm. deposit to put that into an offset account. So you basically, instead of borrowing at 80%, you would borrow at 90%, put your 10% remaining in an offset account. So you'd still pay the exact same interest because your loan's really equal to 80%. But if something happened tomorrow, well, you've got a you know 10% of whatever you purchased at as a buffer. So it could be 50 on a 500,000 or 100,000 on a million dollar property. Um, and what that allows you to do is protect you from higher rates if you want to spend any money on the property, et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, even if you don't think you need it, that doesn't mean you shouldn't use it because it can be real um, protection yeah. for you. That's such a good point. And it's a perfect segue to the next question. But before I get to that, um, I remember when I was working with you for this house that I'm sitting in right now. Um, I remember you were like, well, why don't you just take the full amount and then you can always just use the money to do the renos that we didn't have planning to do or, you know, improve like the landscaping and these types of things to add value to the property. So there are so many options. Like don't just, I, I think the thing is don't just fall for the dogma or like the kind of what you've read in the news that you should do this one thing and this suits everyone um, because I think, you want that flexibility and there are so many options if you have someone that can educate you uh, who you can trust. So the next question came from Big Bang um, and they the question is basically the difference between offset and redraws. They said, what are the main differences between the redraw facility and offset account? What should we take into consideration when choosing one or the other for our mortgage? Like why would a bank offer a redraw over a, an offset? Well, you mentioned offset just before most places yeah. start. Look, it's quite confusing this, but I guess when you think about it, um, the most important element of this is that is one going to cost you more than the other, right? And that's there's, they equal exactly the same thing. So let's just give you some enough numbers. Like let's say you had a $500,000 loan and you had $100,000 extra cash and you went to a bank and said, I want to pay that into my loan, and but I still want to have access to it. So 
you know, and then you, something called redraw. So you put your hundred thousand into the five hundred thousand dollar loan. So your loan would reduce to four hundred thousand. But when you looked in your internet banking, you should still be able to see that hundred thousand available in redraw. You got to be careful when you do that because not all banks will do that, and so that's you got to be mm. sure that that's going to happen, right? But if that does happen, which it should happen, um, then you compare that to the alternative is just having an offset account. Um, for your home loan, so you still have a five hundred thousand dollar loan, but you put a hundred thousand dollars in the offset account. Now, offset okay. accounts are basically savings accounts linked to your loans, right? So instead of earning you interest, it saves you interest because what it does is the bank says, "Okay, you owe us five hundred grand, but we owe you a hundred grand because you've got money in the offset account. We'll charge you interest on the net difference." So in that situation, it's four hundred thousand. So the interest, assuming the rate's exactly the same, and it's a bit of bollocks. Um, out there where people say offset offset home loans are more expensive than redraw loans. That's not true because a good offset account home loan, you could negotiate that rate down dramatically all the way down to just as cheap as other loans. So it's just their headline rates aren't as cheap. You've got to negotiate it. So is that, Chris, sorry, can I just interrupt? Is that where they go like if this is like the premium package or like the, the master I don't know, whatever label they give it, but they try and like throw terms in there to make you think it's like a premium thing? Yeah, if they are. They're called um, professional packages or premium packages, exactly what you say. They're all all the banks are pretty much exactly the same thing, right? They're all just different right. colors. They're all and none of none of them are better than each other, right? You know, the reality is they're all doing the same thing. Um, you know, some of them may do more ethical things behind the scenes, right? But ultimately they're all offering you pretty much the same product, a 30-year loan. Um with a certain interest rate, with a certain annual package fee, um, usually between like sort of two hundred to four hundred dollars a year, right? Um, and uh, that and that the good thing about the package loans, which is what you're talking about here with the offset accounts, is they give you a discount locked in for the life of the loan, but you have to negotiate it. So when oh. when the media talks around these package loans, they just talk about what the headline discount is, and that might be a one point five percent discount. But, you know, a good broker knows they can get a 3% discount or a 3.1% discount, right? Um, and so, yeah, what, when we're talking about offset versus redraw, we're talking about a really well-negotiated offset account versus a redraw account. And they should be ideally roughly the same rate, if not even better on the offset account sometimes. And so why would you go for an offset account is that, you know, the rules around redraw are pretty vague, right? In the contract, what, what a bank can do around that and change your redraw facilities and your access to that can change. You know, CBA did this a few years ago. Um, they got into a bit of trouble. They changed people's repayments. For people who are ahead of their home loans, they increased their home loan repayments. ME Bank a couple of years ago, um, they changed their rules around redraw and they got into a lot of strife around that. If you type it into to, to Google, you'll see. Um, and so we you know, just don't, can't really trust redraw, I don't believe, whereas an offset account is your money. It's in a savings account in your name. No bank can touch that. So from a protection point of view, um, I'd much prefer to have an offset account versus redraw because you just don't know. The final benefit why offset accounts are better is that what you're doing is you're not paying down your loan by putting money in an offset account. You're just putting money in a savings account. And so if you ever decided to turn that property from a home or it might be an investment property now, is you your loan limit stays exactly at the highest level. It doesn't get paid down by your $100,000 in that scenario. And the reason that matters is that you know a property's deductibility is based on its lowest loan limit. You can't pay a loan limit down and then redraw it and then say that's tax deductible. So you've got to be really careful paying down your loan limits and 
than turning a property to an investment property because what you're actually doing is you've actually paid off your duct- deductible debt, um, uh, which is quite a complicated thing to sort of explain. But that's no, 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 it third, makes sense. Yeah, that's the third thing you just got to be really careful because you never know. Your life plan can change, right, particularly for first-time buyers, right? So um, we've seen this mistake many times. You know, a first-time buyer, uh, you know, maybe buyer's a little bit conservative, they have saved really hard. They put in a big deposit, so they don't borrow 80%. They borrow 70% or 60%. They get some family inheritance, even though they could have borrowed 80%. And then they um, live well within their means and they save really hard and they absolutely smash down the debt on this apartment. Um, and then when they feel really confident, they go, oh, you know what, we need a bigger space now. Let's upgrade. But we want to keep our apartment. Um, and then when we look at the numbers, is that debt on the apartment so low because they've smashed it down? It just doesn't make sense to keep it as an investment because it's got no deductible debt on it and then they'd have this big um, non-deductible debt when they buy their house. And so even if they want to keep it, it makes sense to sell it, pay off the new home and then buy a different investment property. So mm-hmm. it just gives you the potential future benefit or they just go, oh, I've got a job in London or I've got a job in Sydney or Melbourne or and I, I was planning to stay living in this apartment but now my plans change. I want to turn it to an investment property and keep it. Well, yeah, you can do that now because you used an offset account, not redraw, and you didn't pay it all off. So, yeah, uh, that's such a good point. So, basically, what you're saying, just for anyone that needs a clarifying point here, is when you have an investment property, it's okay to have the larger balance of debt because you've it's deductible that interest. But when it's on your primary residence and you've paid it off, you may not have the same magnitude of deductibility. So. That's where an offset account with the more flexibility of not having to pay down the principal, you're just sitting the, the money there seems to win. And I often think this recently, like it seems like for me at least, this is my general gist, is that offset is like a clear winner in almost m- most circumstances. Like I, I can't think of many mm. reasons why a redraw makes more sense. What would be the big... Human, human behavior, right? So, oh, course, um, yeah. you know, you mentioned Scott Pate before um, and, you know, what, what was so powerful, what he was saying, he was just saying, like, ch- cut the behavior, give a real simple system. Um, the problem with offset accounts is people do get sticky fingers and they have all their mm. banking linked into the offset account. We don't agree with this. We say that if you're going to use a, your home loan, try to do it at a bank where you're not doing your lending, right? Because what you really want to do is, and, and that's for me, I've got multiple home loans around, a property loans, et cetera, but my day-to-day banking is at ING where I'm not going to probably have a home loan. Just in terms of their servicing calculators, they're very conservative. So I'm probably not going to do their for my type of lending because I'm probably more stretching my capacity, but I do my day-to-day banking there, right? And so mm. the reason for that is, is I don't wash my day-to-day spending with my saving for my home loan. And so where where we see offset accounts go wrong is people mix up their day-to-day banking in their offset account where they're trying to save. And they've got, they might be looking at a hundred thousand dollar limit and they're trying to base their purchasing decisions on their salary, which might be five thousand dollars a month. And they feel really wealthy, right? Because they're looking at their offset account all the time with lots of money in it. And so then they start overspending and they never actually mm. grow their offset account. So they never actually pay off their loans. Whereas if they left that $100,000 at a different bank and then just transferred $3,000 to it every month, they wouldn't, and then they just spent what they had left over, they wouldn't be spending money in their offset account because they just wouldn't see it unless they transferred it back. Um, yeah. So that's where offset accounts go wrong. It's sometimes you, you don't yeah. go, get ahead when you should be. Yeah, because it'd be really easy if you had like 50 grand sitting in there. You'd be like, oh, well, 
you know, Owen's talking about his new Tesla on the podcast. Uh, maybe I should go and get one of those. And then all yeah. of a sudden, <laughs> the benefits <laughs> of that have gone, right? Um, so I think that's so important. And, and um, when you set uh, us up, obviously, you, you, I've spoken about it before. You set us up with Bank of Melbourne slash St. George. Um, yeah. um, but we do all of our banking also with ING, like our personal day-to-day yeah. -day stuff. And the next question came from Hussey which was where do you keep your emergency fund as a property owner? And obviously we tell people not to invest that if they're saving up to buy a property because if you invest it, you your stocks and your ETFs could go down before you get the chance to buy your property. Mm. But um, I, where would it, once you've bought your property, where, what's the best place for this? The offset account, this is a key winner here, right? So, you know, why an offset account so powerful is particularly on your home is then you get yourself a guaranteed investment return of whatever that interest rate is after tax. So mm. right now, someone says, okay, I've got extra, I've got just got $100,000 inheritance. If I put that into my offset account on my home loan and assuming I'm paying 6%, like a good rate slightly under that, but let's just say 6%. That's 6% guaranteed saving for me after tax, which is like a 10% return in another savings account or in stocks or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, and so when you've got a home loan, you've got an offset account, it's very hard to beat that from a, any other. Now, but maybe when interest rates are really low, like when interest rates were yeah. you know, 2 3%, um, maybe you could make more than 5 6% in shares. But that's why a lot of people find it really hard to say when you've got home debt to start going into a share portfolio because you've got to beat the after-tax return that you would have made mm. just paying off your home loan. Now, that's not to say you should never buy shares, but, you know, other things like putting money into super can beat that for sure. Um, mm. And, yeah, but maybe you should be using, if you want to buy shares, maybe you should use the equity in your property um, because yeah. that's actually a lower ra uh, minimum rate you have to beat because that that debt would be tax deductible. So yeah. that's usually what you do is you put any money you've got left over when you've got a property into an offset account. Maybe um, for anyone listening to this, so rather than uh, you, you brought in something there, which is really interesting to me, which is using the equity in your home, basically redraw that as a line of credit and you use that to buy ETFs and shares and all that sort yep. of thing. If people are interested in this, we're going to have, obviously Chris is going to come back regularly and we're going to talk about property and mortgages and cash flow and this sort of stuff. If you're listening to this and you want Chris to come back on and explain how that works, how you can redraw that equity, please just send us a message. You can use the, the link in your podcast player if you're watching this on YouTube, just in the description. It says ask a question. Um, just say yes, please, or just let us know on Instagram or wherever you get your social media um, because I think that deserves a, a separate episode where we can go through <laughs> that step by step. Um, the next question comes from Ivy Gray. Um and the title of this question is Making Moves in a Rental Crisis, which is a good name for it. But they just want to know, they've got a question, which is buying first versus selling first when upgrading your home in the midst of a rental crisis. What are the financing options, the pros and cons, and the risks of the different ways to go about it? So just to set the scene for context for people, imagine you own a home and you want to upgrade into something like a family home or something like that. It's just, it seems like there's a lot of moving parts. You've got to sell, you've got to buy, you've got to find a place. You've got to contact a real estate agent. Chris, how do you unravel that? You know, when you said we should do another episode, we should do another episode on yeah. this. Um, we absolutely yeah, love helping upgraders. Um, it's it's a really tricky one. And, you know, just like we said there around um, using equity and offset accounts, it's never that sort of black and white. There's usually, you know, you've got to really fiddle this with everyone's situation to get the right mix for everyone, right? And 
Upgrading is, you know, there's a number of things that you want to really think through and there's a number of options to achieve it. We had a client just do it last week. They've been trying to do it for, you know, a couple of years. We had a client do it a couple of weeks ago. They've been trying to do it for six years. So, you yeah, know, well. upgrading never really goes away. And that's six year one. They've been wanting to do it for six years. Um, and they've been pre approved. Yeah. Yeah. And that was another one. You know, there was two clients buying up who have been with us for six years. One was a first home buyer who just never pulled the bin. Um, and one had been wanting to upgrade for over six years. So, they, these things, but the reason why it matters is that they, the problem won't go away. Like, let's say you're a young family, you're in an apartment and you need to upgrade. Um, sometimes the stress of doing that just stops you putting, you know, you put it off. And the problem in that situation is generally the property you want to upgrade into is a better asset than what you've got. It's got more space. It's more suited to families. It's more scarce. Um, and that place is going up at a higher rate than what you've got. And it's going at a higher rate at a higher purchase price. So that gap's getting bigger. So the first thing I just think through is, okay, if I, I don't want to just delay this to when I need to do it. Maybe I should do it prior to when I actually need to do it, as in I'm bursting at the seams. Maybe I should do it earlier for the financial benefit um, of having to and not do it in the future. And sometimes you might not be able to do it in the future as well. It de-risks you because that place could run on you. Your incomes may not be mm. high enough to allow you to do it. And so that's another reason to potentially do it sooner is just to lock it in rather than getting to it and going, now we have to move an extra five, 10 Ks out and we're a long way away from our family and we've got young kids. And But if we did that five years ago, we could have done it. So mm. just be aware of that. So what to do first? Look, the first thing to think about is the quality of your asset that you've got now, right? If it's a good asset, like it's presented well, it's uh, not many of them on the market, it's likely to sell reasonably fast, um, you've got good confidence on roughly what it will sell for because there's been a few past sales and you know that things are turning over, right? That's You're in a good place. If you've got an asset that's compromised or flawed or is not scarce at all, you got to be really careful buying first because it could take a while to sell your property and you mm. really don't know what you're going to sell it for. So think about like a big regional block or a high-density apartment that's got building issues or that's not one of the best ones in the block or it's in an area where there's 700 of them for sale right now. Um, so the, the reason why and, – and because if it takes a while to sell or you can't sell it, then it's really dangerous buying first because you could be in a situation where you can't settle or you have to pay ridiculous bridging costs or – you might lose your deposit and, and things like that. So, but mm. let's just assume in this situation you've got a good asset to sell. Um, then it's a real dangerous situation. Whereas if you do sell first, you go, yeah, great. We know exactly what we sold for. It was a million dollars. Look, it was highly likely we we're going to sell for a million dollars anyway because there's none on the market. And, you know, the one that sold two weeks ago had 15 bidders at it, right? We'll know we're going to sell it. So the chance of that selling fast and for, for a fair price was really high. So do you really need that clarity? Probably not because you know that it's probably going to, that's going to be the situation because you've done that market research. But let's say you did, you sold first. That's great. You've got the money in the bank, but where are you going to live, right? And mm. the problem is what we find in this situation, usually people have to go either find some, they could sell on a long settlement. So they could sell on a three or six month settlement and then try to buy. But either, whether they do that or whether they go on rent, the same emotions take over. And that starts to make it feel like, oh, actually, we need to get something. We might be homeless in three months when we are, you know, the settlement happens. We don't want to be in rental accommodation um, because our lease is going to run out in six months. Or, and particularly if after you sell, the market starts to run. So there's momentum in the market, right? So you sell for a million dollars, 
the home you want to buy is 1.3, but you're looking and then the 1.3 goes to 1.4. You start to get this sort of emotions kick in and you really try to rush your decision. And one that we find is that people go from one frying pan to another in this situation often yeah, because they rush the upgrade. And if it's an upgrade, usually you're planning to live in it for a long time. Most people upgrade when they get to that family stage and then that's going to be their house. They take the kids all through school through. You know, that's generally why they're upgrading because they need that space. And so the worst thing that can happen is you sell, you go rent, you freak out, the market moves, hmm. you rush the purchase, you buy a wrong property, a busy road, a dark place, a, not in the dream location, something that needs a lot of work, you know, just not the right fit. You're in that property and then six months later, you're like, oh, like we really rushed that. Whereas if you potentially look to buy first, you, you basically look to, you know, you're hunting, you're waiting, you know, exactly the numbers on what you can sell, what you can afford. And then you look to buy on a, you know, ideally a four to six month settlement. Um, not every yeah, seller will say, take that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, and then what that allows you to do is in this, this individual situation, you need to talk this through. But ultimately, what you try to do there is you buy a good asset, you're really patient for it. And once you've secured that property on a longer settlement, then you put your property on the market. You know it's going to sell pretty fast. You take a bad day price. So we think optimistically it would sell for a million dollars, but on a bad day, we'll get $9.50 for it. Um, even if we got $9.50, we can still settle on the new place. And what ends up happening is you end up crossing your fingers on the sale. You you get it 100% ready for sale. You pick the right agent. You style it. You fix up all the small things, and then you try to sell it. So just like, like literally on the weekend, we got an email. They a client upgraded in Sydney, um, mm-hmm. and you know, they were selling a terrace in the inner west. Um, they thought they'd sell it for three point two. They end up selling it for three four five or something like that. You know, wow. two hundred fifty grand more than their bad day price. And um, we've often seen that happen where you know people do their numbers on the bad day, then they end up getting a good result. But even if you get a bad result, not a, not exactly what you wanted. The good news in this situation, you've because you were patient and you were picky, you ended up getting the right property you want to upgrade into. Um, and then that's a good asset that you're going to go and live it in for 15 years and that's going to compound for you. So mm. it is a tricky one. Now, there are lots of there are alternatives to this. There's sometimes bridging loans and relocation loans, um, which may be possible for you if you've got lots and lots of equity. Um, and uh, But often that doesn't suit people. There are sometimes mm. people who have got ridiculous servicing and they can keep their first property, which gives you all these other options. Um, but often people have to sell their home to buy another home. I was going to say, so the two, I was thinking about all these different variables up in the air. Like people need to go and speak to say you or whoever, like their expert that's in their corner that can assess all the options and has done this a hundred times before, if not a thousand yep. times. But um, I think, I feel like the two key pillars of that strategy is one, knowing if your current property is high quality, like just knowing if it's a good property and it's going to sell because that gives you the confidence to go on the market and start looking while you're while in the background preparing your current home. And the second thing is, of course, your 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 ability to to lend, like to get to get a loan. Sorry, um, so your income, the stability, how the bank would look at you, because again, that's going to help you avoid potentially some of those more riskier forms of financing to get you across into the new property. Um, and I think just generally speaking, having someone in your corner would help with this because you mentioned the third pillar is probably emotions. And if you're looking at a rental crisis, which 
again, is a whole nother podcast series that we've talked about on the Australian Property Podcast about 100 times in the past six months. Um, so go and check that out if you're in that situation. But um, like if, you, if you're staring down, family's got to relocate, not sure where you're going to go, got to take out another loan, got to settle this loan or whatever the case may be. Having someone there to just calm the nerves who's been there before and seen it before is so important. Um, I've got one more question for you, Chris, and it comes yeah. from Andy. And this is a bit of fun. Um, so Andy says, does telling the real estate agent your personal circumstances help your chance to be a better choice of uh, the better to be a better buyer or is it better for the vendor? So what they're trying to say is, for example, if you say to uh, the real estate agent, hey, I'm looking to buy in the next six months. This is my budget. Does telling the real estate agent help you or help the seller of the house who they're getting paid by? Because the vendor or the seller could potentially use that information against you, I would think. But so he's a bit concerned. Would the real estate agent take your side and help you out? Or how do you think about this? Oh, it's a hard one. So um, ultimately, the real estate agent is the gatekeeper, Right, and while they and they absolutely work for the vendor, um, the best agents in an area, and usually the ones who build the better reputation over the longer term, are the ones who consistently do things that are in the vendor's interest, not in the interest of the buyer. They'll work right. the buyer, um, and you know they have all sorts of tactics. I was just at the swimming pool the other week with my daughter and chatting to an agent, and they'll tell me all these tactics I were trying with a buyer and. You know, and, and it was just, and I was like, wow, that's actually, yeah, it's slowing down auctions that were doing that situation and things like that. So, um, yeah, you've got to be really careful. Agents are not there for you. They're for the vendor. And you've got to remember when you sell one day, you want that agent to work for you because you're the one paying them, not the the buyers. Yeah. Do vent agents, though, have a little bit of power in, in offers preference? Absolutely. Can they position an offer uh, which is more enticing and and you know, push the vendor in certain situations. Um, I would say absolutely as well. Do agents potentially do things that are in their best interest as well? You know, want to want to sell mm. to people that they like because when they sell one day, they're more likely to sell through them. Yep. There's always like this. It's a it's quite a complex system. Look, if you be really cool with the agent and try to play too cool for school, I'm not telling you anything, mate. Um, we're just looking. Look, are they going to put you on the hit list, the hot buyer list? Well, no, because you haven't said to them, we've been looking mm. for six months. We're a young family. We're quite desperate. My wife's pregnant. Um, we need to buy. We're pre-approved. We know exactly what we can spend. We know what we're looking for. Look, if anything comes on that hits our brief, we, we will be there. We'll prioritize it. We won't stuff you around. We know how to check a contract. We know what a building and pest is. Like the agent's going to be listening to that and going, these buyers are on the ball. If I get a property that suits them, they're going to make offers, and I can get these two ends of a transaction to me. So you've got to be you've got to be careful. And I think even sharing your budget, it's dangerous to not share the full budget. Like if you say, "Oh, we can only spend one point five. What happens if a dream property comes on and it's one point six? Even though you could spend one point seven. I know these are big numbers, sorry, but um, but you know, um, you know, or if it's seven fifty versus six hundred, um, uh, you know, you've got to be really careful not undersharing. Um, and I, you know, even if you've got a budget and you don't want to spend it, that's okay. You can easily say to an agent, look, I know I've got a budget of a million dollars, but for this property, our walk away price is X because we just don't see value mm. past that point and we're willing to gamble. The agent has to take that story to the vendor. Like, so you can definitely not have to spend all your budget if you tell the agent that. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, just remember that the agent will, 
work, if they feel like they've got you as a mate and things like that, they'll keep doubling down on that. They'll make you feel like they're your mm. best friend. They'll ask you heaps of questions around your life and your family and, you know, and that are not to do with the property just to get that real attachment, that real reciprocity effect strong. Um, and they'll do all sorts of things to make sure you go to the auction. And when you're at the auction, they'll do all sorts of things to get in your ear um, and the emotions will take over. And so just it's, it is a mm. – I'm useless at this, to be honest. I, I, I probably, you know, get too pally with the agents. Um, and the buyer's <laughs> agent, we usually always – always every single property I bought has been through a buyer's agent. And the buyer's agent is like, shut up, Chris, just let me take over. Um, <laughs> and, and even though we do what we do, like – you know, I can remember all the properties. Besides the last one we upgraded, I was 100% certain that was the right one straight away. Um, you know, it's it's an emotional roller coaster because the problem with buying is you're only dealing with what's on the market right now. There's all these properties out there, but you're only comparing what's on the market and, you know, there's a pressure of buying with the markets moving and things like that. And so you are always got to weigh out the compromises of the negatives on this property. Is it worth that risk for that price? Does it suit our family and things like that? And when there's some type of time pressure or, you you know, the market's moving, your brain just takes over and takes you in weird and wonderful ways. So mm. um, that's mm. where a buyer's agent is really good. They, they give you that real calmness because they're not emotionally invested and then they can do the research and say, no, actually, for everything you're telling me, this is good and this is what good value is. Um, mm. Yeah, so. Um, yeah, yeah, so they can kind of act as a barrier between you and the agent if you're not 100% sure on how to play that. I feel like um, because Amy talks <clears throat> about this a lot on the Australian property podcast, she says things like off-market transactions and um, developing the relationships with the real estate agents is important to find the opportunities that might not go on to realestate.com.au or domain. Those are, those may be like there's a, a vendor or a seller who is selling, but they want to do it in private, for example. And the only way you're going to find out about that is if you have those relationships and you speak to the real estate agents. Like I remember um, we did, we weren't very prescriptive on exactly what our budget was, but we definitely made sure that all of the agents knew that we were buying in this range, in this area, this is what we're looking for. And they would call us out of the blue and say, hey, this, this property at XYZ location is coming up on the market in the next two weeks, go and do a drive-by or something like that because they're human beings, right? They've got to, they want to make money. And so the easiest way for them, as you say, is to match the buyer and the seller We'll let them both work together in harmony and try and um, try and play that human nature to your advantage if you are a buyer. Um, Chris, we've we've got for anyone that's really early in their journey, we've got the um, the free property course that's available on the Rask website. There'll be a link in the show notes. When should people get in contact with Blusk if they want to get in contact with you and the team? At what point of their journey should they do that? Look, if you've got any real questions with it and you want to talk it through, the team absolutely can help and just uh, give you that clarity, right? You might say, look, I'm thinking about starting a business. How does that affect it, you know, for yeah, my situation, point. you know, or you know, what savings deposit do I really need, you know, based on my profession or, you know, or even if you want. So definitely there's no real like, oh, you have to be at this point until you can speak to someone. I think that's just, you know, potentially too late, you know, because you've, mm. you've misjudged it or you've, um, and so, yeah, don't don't hesitate reaching out. We can definitely just talk you through and and, and figure out what's the right next move for you. Um, yeah. Often, though, we get clients and we tell them to, you know, maybe you need to save more, or maybe you should bring your partner involved. It's you know not a case of well, okay, you can do something now based on that saving. Let's just go rush and do it. We often 
think it's better to wait for clients. And so, yeah, we'll also push back if we, we think it's too early for you and you really want to do something now, um, which is yeah. often the case. Yeah, and some people that I know that you've told me that have come through the the RASC uh, Plus JV and come through and tried to get um, into a property now, you've said to them, like, it's listen, it's probably something you want to revisit early next year when there's X, Y, Z factors in your favor or whatever, which is really, really yeah. good. Um, and people that, if you are listening to this, you can follow the, the link in your podcast player. Um, it says mortgage broking. You just click on that. You can learn more about Blusk there. But also, if you go through that automated form, you can book in a call with one in the one of the Blusk team and you can just chat to them. Just have a quick chat to them, 15 minutes. There's zero obligation. Just It's free. Just go and have a chat with them and tell them about your circumstances. It's very different for mortgage broking than it is for financial advice. If you book a 15-minute call for financial advice, they can only have to be very careful about what mm. they can say to you and all that sort of stuff. But a mortgage broker can tell you, give you common sense feedback almost straight away. So um, book in that call and just have a conversation and just see what happens from there. But um, yeah. Chris, this is heaps of fun, mate. Really appreciate it. People can catch you uh, this Sunday on the Australian Property Podcast uh, every week over there, in fact. So if they want more of your your good stuff. <laughs> I think someone yes, someone yesterday, I don't know if they called you a – uh, a national treasure or something like this, but someone just absolutely <laughs> loved what you had to say, mate. So really appreciate you you coming on the show. That makes me sound old, mate. But anyway, I'll roll with that. Um, <laughs> thanks, Owen. Cheers, Happy mate. days. Cheers, mate. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode. If you're keen to learn more, head on over to Rask Education and take one of our free money and investing courses. You could even become a RASC Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week. Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, 
now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.